As a sign of reverence for God's word, I'm going to invite you to please stand as we hear a wonderful passage of scripture taken from Matthew's gospel, chapter 22. No doubt you've heard of a few key select verses of scripture found in the gospels. Certainly the Great Commission comes to mind as one of those passages of scriptures that's very prominent and popular. But in addition to that, the great commandments of Matthew chapter 22 are also passages that we have probably heard before. If not, listen, so that you might hear God's goodness for you this morning. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for this good word given to us today. You may be seated. I love the story of the Austin Seminary professor who had an opportunity to travel all the way to the Middle East, all the way to Cairo, Egypt, to take part in a seminary conference where uh, different institutions were coming together to figure out ways in which they could better partner with one another. So this particular seminary professor took part in the conversations, made some new relationships, had a great time, but at the end of the conference, he was moved by the Spirit and wanted to preach in one of the local congregations of Cairo. Now, if you know anything about Cairo and Egypt, the prominent language there is Arabic. And so they partnered him with an escort and a translator, and they sent him on his way on a Sunday morning. He was there in front of the congregation. The worship service started. It finally came to be that it was time for the sermon to be delivered, and he was introduced as an honored guest. So he began his sermon by offering these words. He said to the congregation, the title of my message this morning is as follows. The dialogical nature of ultimate reality requires that all human thought be divided into two spheres, the abstract and the concrete. And at that, he waited for the translation. Well, you can imagine the translator's eyes were about that big. Beads of sweat were building on his forehead. He turned to the congregation with a panicked expression on his face, and all of a sudden, he smiled. A light bulb went on. And he said to the congregation that was gathered in Arabic, my dear friends, our brother has come all the way from America to tell you that Jesus loves you. (laughs) That story was told to us by Ken Bailey, who was a missionary in the Middle East for about 50 years. And we were in Egypt with Ken. I don't know if the story is true, but I love the moral or the lesson of the story. Sometimes we make things so unnecessarily complicated. Uh, Sometimes we just have to simplify things, right? I love the acronym KISS 
that spells out, keep it simple. Oh, yeah, yeah. You hesitated there, didn't you? You're a little bit uncomfortable saying that word. Somebody in the first service said, sweetheart. (laughs) I love that one. Keep it simple. Keep it simple, sweetheart. Keep it simple, silly, or keep it simple, whatever the other word is. Uh, I had a good colleague in ministry, a friend who would often like uh, to say to the congregation, keep the main thing the main thing. Well, today we are embarking on a series within our series. So we're still, a, we're, we're still going through our countercultural series, but over the next 10 weeks, we're going to kind of diverge from that just a little bit as we focus on the 10 commandments that are found in the Old Testament. So if you've ever wanted the opportunity to dive a little bit deeper into the Ten Commandments, you get your opportunity over the course of this summer. I think it's going to be great. I've been entrusted with the responsibility of giving you an introduction to the Ten Commandments. And more than anything, I want you to know that as we explore the Ten Commandments, we have to keep focusing on the main thing. Let's let the main thing be the main thing as we explore our Scripture's Uh, over the course of the next 10 weeks. Of course, we're being directed by our questions from the New City Catechism. Question number seven, you already heard it read aloud. We gave an answer. It's going to be up on the screen one more time, and I invite you to respond uh, together in offering the answer. The question is, what does the law of God require? And we respond with the following. Personal and perfect and perpetual obedience that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbors as ourselves. What God forbids should never be done, and what God commands should always be done. And that's what brings us to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, this interchange that takes place between the expert and the law and Jesus. Jesus is in the midst of Holy Week, Uh, He's already rode triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem. uh, He's already cleansed the temple of the money changers. He's already begun to express some spiritual authority in terms of his teaching on parables. And then he is faced with this question, what is the greatest commandment? He responds with an incredibly powerful answer. But before we jump into Matthew 22, we actually have to go back in time about 33 or 3,500 years to the 13th, 14th century BC. To help us understand Jesus's response, we have to go back to the time of Moses. Now, everybody's heard the Lord's Prayer, right? You know what the Lord's Prayer is. We've already offered the Lord's Prayer within the context of this worship service. Everybody heard of the Lord's Prayer before? Raise your hand, okay, just to make sure. All right, Lord's Prayer, it's a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. In fact, in Luke's gospel, the account is uh, his disciples come to him and they say, Lord, teach us to pray because they noticed he's praying in a very different way. And so for generations upon generations, Christians have followed the Lord's Prayer as a way to direct their prayer. Well, preceding the Lord's Prayer, there's actually something called the Shema Prayer, and it goes back even further. The Shema prayer was a Jewish prayer, and the point of the Shema prayer was to respond to God's love with a pledge of allegiance and faithfulness. 
The origin is found all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. If you know your Old Testament, if you've ever taken casket empty with case, you know that the first five books of the Bible are called the what? The Pentateuch, that's right. The five books of Moses, and it goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and what? Deuteronomy, that's right. So one of the five books of Moses. Um, And so let's look at where this Shema prayer comes from. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and specifically there are passages of verses 4 through 9. I want to unpack that just a little bit so that we can understand the response that Jesus offers to this expert in the law. So the verses are going to be up on the screen. The first thing that we read together is, Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. Or specifically, Shema, O Israel. Now, when it comes to translating Hebrew and Greek into English, something is often lost in the translation. English is inadequate to truly convey what's going on in the original biblical language. The simple translation of Shema is here, but it means so much more than that. Shema, there should be kind of an underscore under it. It means not only hear, but listen, focus, pay attention. But in addition to that, it also means obey and act. In other words, Something important is about to be offered, so focus, hear this, and respond with obedience. Hear this, and then do something. So what are we supposed to hear? Well, second half of verse 4 says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's a great affirmation of faith that's being offered here. Uh, Moses is wanting the Israelites to remember who God is and what God has done. Moses wants the Israelites to remember that God has delivered them out of the hands of slavery, out of the hands of the Egyptians. He wants them to be faithful in terms of their response to what God has done. He doesn't want them to make the same mistakes as their parents. This next generation of Israelites are coming in on the scene and their parents are starting to forget what God has done. And so they're starting to turn away from God. And uh, quite honestly, quite frankly, you see this pattern played out in the Old Testament time and time again. God will call his people to him. They will be faithful for a while, but before too long, their attention starts to wane and they start to wonder and they start to worship other gods. And so Moses is telling this next generation of Israelites, these people who are eventually going to be in the promised land, remember who God is and remember what he has done. This is preeminent above everything else. So what are we supposed to do in response to that affirmation of faith? Well, here it is in verse five, the verse in which Jesus quotes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now, if you were paying attention to Matthew 22, you know that there was a different word that's used there, and I'm going to come back to that in just a minute, but that's the respond to who God is. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. 
Moses quickly adds to that because he doesn't want the Israelites to forget this important message. So he goes on to say in verses 6 through 9, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk on the road. When you lie down, when you get up, tie them on the symbols, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your homes and of your gates. In other words, these commands are to be imprinted in your souls. Talk about them with your children at home, on the road, when you get up, when you lie down. Meditate on these commands and don't you dare forget how much God loves you. There's this great old George Strait song written in, uh, I think it came out in 1999, but it's one of my favorite songs. Every time it comes on the radio, I always turn up the radio because it's got this great tune to it. It's an upbeat song. It's, it's from this, I think this man to his woman, this husband to his wife. It's called Write This Down. You remember that old song? Some of you do, okay? Don't worry, I'm not gonna sing it. But I want to read to you the chorus. I love the chorus. Again, every time it's on the radio, I turn it up. It goes, baby, write this down. Take a little note to remind you in case you didn't know. Tell yourself I love you and I don't want you to go. Write this down. And then it goes on to say, take, I'm not going to sing it. Take my words and read. (laughs) Take my words and read them every day. Keep them close by. Don't you let them fade away. Love that song. Moses is wanting the Israelites to take these commands and write them down. Read them every day. Keep them close by. Don't let them fade away. Don't forget that God loves you and you in turn are called to love God. So the Shema prayer became this continual constant reminder of the love that God has for his people and what our appropriate response would be. Uh, They were supposed to read this or pray this in the morning and pray it at night. And so every day, a good and faithful Jew would wake up in the morning, this was the prayer. Go to bed at night, this was the prayer. Never, ever, ever forget that God loves you. So moving forward about 1,400 years or so, we find Jesus teaching during Holy Week. Palm Sunday has passed, as I said. He's done all these things. He's conveying his spiritual authority. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees are not happy one bit. He's just silenced the Sadducees. And now it's, turned the, it's time for the Pharisees to take their turn in terms of uh, uh, springing a trap on Jesus. And so that question once again is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds with this up on the screen, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Now, understanding the history of the Shema prayer, you, you understand that those in attendance would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. This was not a radical teaching. This was not new. This was not something that was on the fringe. But you may have also noticed that Jesus offers a slight amendment to the first part. Whereas in Deuteronomy, it says, love the Lord your God with your strength. Jesus' interpretation says, love the Lord your God with all your mind. And so essentially, love God with your heart, soul, and mind. Love God with your inner self, your inner life, or your 
life principle, and also with your mind, understanding, and intelligence. So love God with every fiber of your being, with every part of who you are and what you have. Love God. Well, this kind of love, this comprehensive, complete, and total love will naturally lead someone to a response, a response of obedience. So what does that obedience look like? Don't have to wait very long because Jesus adds in verse 39 up on the screen, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now that passage is not from Deuteronomy chapter six. That's actually from Leviticus 19.18. Uh, Chapter 19 of Leviticus has some commandments that are listed there, some very practical ways in which a person is called to love their neighbor. And the summation of that passage is verse 18, where it says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so by combining Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, Jesus is making a profound statement. And if you don't hear anything else that I'm saying this morning, hear this, loving God and loving your neighbor are not mutually exclusive. In other words, you cannot love God and not love your neighbor. They are intimately connected to one another. Years ago, I had an occasion to go to a congregation and I was serving in that church. We had a very prominent member uh, of the community who was actually a member of our congregation. He sang in the choir. He was a member of Rotary. Um, And I don't say this lightly, but he was probably the meanest person I've ever met. Um, And and honestly, when I was attending Rotary events and uh, engaged with some people out in the community, when they found out that he was a member of my congregation, when they found out that he sang in the choir, they would go, really? Him? When I first got to that church and I had my first interaction with him, I started to ask other members, I said, well, what's, tell me the story, what's going on there? And they would simply chalk it up and they would say, oh, he's always been that way. He's always been that way. And of course, the real tragedy of the situation is this is a gentleman who week by week would sit in the choir loft and he, he would hear the gospel proclaimed. He would sing these amazing songs and yet somehow it didn't infiltrate his heart or his soul. And in fact, he conducted himself in such a way when he was out in the community that people questioned. They said, really, that guy's a Christian? He sings in the choir? I I don't know what was going on in his heart, and I'm not standing up here trying to judge you. I'm just trying to illustrate that if our actions toward our neighbors don't represent the love that we have in Christ, well, then we've got a problem. Loving God, loving our neighbors, those are not mutually exclusive, once again. So loving your neighbor is the appropriate response, appropriate appropriate obedient response to loving God. And then Jesus finishes this passage by saying, in verse 40, up on the screen, once again, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, Jesus is not unique in making these two commandments paramount, but he is unique in terms of infusing them and exalting them together above the laws, the rest of the law, and the rest of the prophets. So the importance of this teaching cannot be overstated. Jesus is wanting to say to those who are in attendance, 
And to those of us that are about to start this series on the Ten Commandments, this is the main thing. Love God, love your neighbor. If you go, go about trying to adhere to these commandments, but you've missed this point, you've missed the point of the commandments. Um, just to give you a little bit of a teaser, we're not going to get into the specifics of the commandments, but I want to try to connect a few dots for you this morning. Let's show the first two commandments up there on the screen, if you don't mind. Uh, first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. The second one is, you shall make no idols. Let's go to the third and fourth. You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. Keep the Sabbath day holy. So what a lot of commentators will suggest is that these first four are connected to the command to love God. In other words, as you think about the first four, they're all about the relationship a person has with God. But again, if you live into these commandments, but you don't have love, you've missed the point. These four commandments is what God's ordered love looks like. Let's go to the next six. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. In addition to that, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet. So these are the outward expressions in terms of the relationships that you have with other people. And so what some commentators will suggest is the next six very much deal with what it means to love your neighbor. But again, if you live into these commandments and do not have love, you've missed the point. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians that you can do amazing things, but if you do not have love, you're a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, you're an instrument that's not living into the beautiful music uh, to which you are called. Does that make sense? So the main thing of the Ten Commandments, the first main thing is to love God. Well, what does it mean to love I jumped over that word very, very quickly. So, um, and I'm looking at the time and I'm running out of time. So let me go through this very quickly. There is a significant word that's used in the scriptures here. Again, something is often lost in the translation when it comes to Hebrew and Greek. In this instance, it's Greek into English. There are four words that are used in the New Testament that we simply translate as love. C.S. Lewis wrote about that in his wonderful book called The Four Loves. The four loves are as follows. Storge, philia, eros, and agape. Storge love is kind of the common love that we all experience with one another. Philia, where we get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, is a familial love or a friendship love. Eros is where we get the word erotic. It's a romantic love that uh, people might have toward one another. Agape is the big one. C.S. Lewis will describe it as charity love, but agape love is described as a divine gift love. In other words, it comes from God and it's not something that we deserve. The word that's used in Matthew 22 is agape. Agape, a powerful word that connotes an element of grace, an element of just unbelievable love, essentially. I have a minister mentor that I worked with for a number of years that always knew the importance of teaching his congregation the importance of agape love. And every year he would have kind of the same sermon. He changed it up a little bit, but the title was always the same. He called it Sloppy Agape. Sloppy Agape. 
I love that title. He used to often say to his congregation that, uh, you know, when you think about the messiness of life, the brokenness of life, the relationships that, that we struggle with, the only thing that overcomes that is that sloppy agape, that kind of love that just gets in there in terms of the messiness of the relationships that we have. Sloppy agape, uh, sloppy agape is something that covers up a whole multitude of sins. And again, it's a divine gift love. So it's a, so it's a love that originates from God and it's God's gift to us. C.S. Lewis will write these words, God is love. God is love. And this primal love, that is agape love, is a gift love. In God, there is no hunger that needs to be filled, only plenteousness that desires to give. God, who needs nothing, loves into existence creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. And then he'll go on to say, and I love this part, divine gift love, agape love, is the, in the man, in the person, enables him to love what is not naturally lovable. Lepers, criminals, enemies, morons, his words, not mine. But how many times have you been a moron and someone loved you anyway? <laughs> the sulky, the superior, the sneering. And as all Christians know, there is another way of giving to God. Every stranger whom we feed or clothe is Christ. And this apparently is gift love to God, whether we know it or not. So gift love, gift, divine gift love, agape love is a grace love that comes from God. And it's something that is to be passed on from other, from believer to others. The last point that I'll make as I am now out of time we're, we're about to embark on this series in which we're gonna unpack the 10 commandments and we've asked the question, what does the law require? The main thing is this sloppy agape, this divine gift love. So don't forget that as we go through each of the commandments. The other thing that you need to know is these commandments will always point us toward our crucified and resurrected Lord. We have to look at the commandments through a Christological lens. They point us toward Jesus. Jesus, of course, says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So the laws are fulfilled in Jesus, and the laws point us toward Christ. The commandments present the righteousness of Christ to us in that Jesus is the only one who perfectly obeys the law. The commandments show our need for Christ in that the law convicts us of our sin and our brokenness and our missteps. The commandments show the righteousness of Christ imputed to us in that in him we are forgiven. And the commandments show us how God wants, to give, wants us to give thanks for Christ in terms of our obedience. Our obedience to the law should be a response to the grace and love afforded to us in Christ. And then finally, Christ himself is the substance of the law, the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is who we worship. We don't worship the law. We worship Jesus. So let me close with this. Tiger Joe Thompson Jr. was a member of the pastor nominating committee that called me to the First Presbyterian Church of Nashville, Tennessee. Joe was uh, an insurance salesman for Northwestern Mutual. And so upon arriving there, he was quick to pull us aside, wanted to make sure that we were all covered in terms of our insurance. Um, Joe was um, the consummate Southern gentleman from Nashville, Tennessee. And 
you know, he, he, Joe Thompson talked like this. Thick Southern accent. And he had a wonderful Southern belle, elegant wife, whose name was appropriately Martha. So Joe and Martha Thompson. And Joe would come over to our house and make sure that we were up to speed in terms of our insurance, wanted to make sure we were protected. But we always loved when Joe would come over because he, because he would regale us uh, with stories from his life. See, Joe Thompson, Tiger Joe Thompson, had served in World War II. He was a P-51 Mustang pilot and had flown in over 90 combat missions. Been shot, barely made it back to base, almost died a number of times, and certainly had a number of friends who did pass away. Joe um, was such a delight to talk to, and he never... He always talked about the friends that he lost and his experiences. He never talked about the accolades. And it wasn't until he passed away a few years ago that I actually understood how significant his role was. He photographed Omaha Beach just two days before the D-Day invasion. As, um, in addition to that, he filmed or took photos of Nazi troop movements during the Battle of the Bulge. And so for his service, he received the Distinguished Flying Cross, the Air Medal, with 15 oak leaf clusters and six bronze stars, the Distinguished Unit Badge, and the French, I'm gonna, I said this incorrectly at the first service, but the Croix de Guerre, Croix de, the Cross of War, which is a French award. Um, he passed away in 2012 at the age of 92, and just two weeks before his death, President Sarkozy of France honored Joe with the country's highest decoration, the Legion of Honor. I had no idea. No idea. Joe was full of stories of former servicemen and women, many of whom did not survive. He spoke of the pain of losing those people. He was able to travel to France for the 50th anniversary of Normandy in 1994. He was actually the guest of honor at many of the festivities, and especially in the city of Les Molais. He was recognized for his significant contribution toward the liberation of France from Nazi Germany. He was there for about a week. You know, there's always a language gap, you know, not, you know, French and, and English, I almost said American, French and English. I mean, you know, sometimes it's hard to understand one another, but his driver who drove him around in the week of that celebration and recognition, couldn't speak a lick of English. And yet, when he dropped him off at the airport for Joe and Martha to go back to their home in Nashville, he embraced him and hugged him and cried. Joe and some of his fellow servicemen and women recounted their experience in a book called Missions Remembered, a book that he presented to me that had all these autographs of these great World War II veterans who had done some significant things during World War II. But in his recollection, he wrote these words about this driver. He said he could not say what was in his heart. He spoke no English, but he thanked us profusely in French. There were tears in his eyes as he sought to demonstrate love. Now, what Joe lifted up to me and others who have sacrificed for the sake of service and country one of those verses of scripture that means so much is John 15, 13. 
Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And certainly tomorrow, on Memorial Day, we remember those who laid down their life for the sake of one's friends. But today, the Lord's Day, and every Sunday, and especially as we work our way through the Ten Commandments, let us not forget that the Lord our God has laid down his life for us. The divine gift love that's afforded to us in Christ Jesus, it moves us, it fills us, and it compels us to share that love with others. Our task is to love God and to love others so that others might see the reality of the crucified and resurrected Jesus. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we take a moment now and we thank you for that divine gift love, that sloppy agape, that, that love that covers a multitude of sins. We think about the relationships that we have with others, relationships that are broken. Maybe it's a relationship with someone that we haven't spoken to in years. And yet the divine love that's been entrusted to us is the love that can compel us to reach out. And so gracious and loving God, as we continue to work our way through your commands, let us not forget the main thing. Let us remember that you have called us because you have first loved us. So gracious and loving God, we lift this up to you in the strong and saving name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.